And we are back with Hippie Torales. And here's one thing, Hippie, I like to do on this show where I've been interviewed as well. I don't like to step on you guys. That's why I have you really speak because none of us get a chance when we're interviewed to really explain it. And we need you to explain. And I feel that moment coming where the birth of Abe's disco. And you're going to tell us about that. Cause we got to go right from the, I'm just about ready to pick up from that point all the way to now. So everyone buckle in people. This is where the garage of New Jersey begins. And the architect behind that is right now here. He's going to tell you about it. So, cause you mentioned Abe's disco. I'm waiting here. First of all, Explain number one what the place was because I remember you were dancing at your sister's wedding. No, I'm just saying, so talk, you know, but talk about the transition, yeah. Al Murphy, the whole, you know, Shelton, everybody. You have to, you, it's your thing. So right. please. So, what happened, uh, is the way it started was, um, we had open docks and and docks opened in '76 and what happened is I, I was playing there and we have built up. Docs was actually the precursor to Zanzibar. The crowd that went to Zanzibar and the garage and all that from Jersey went to Docs. That's where they went. It was the equivalent of the crowd that went to uh, Better Days with T. Scott. That small club, that's what Docs was in Jersey. It was that same kind of equivalent, basically, pretty much. So I had built my base there, which was the audience they wanted for, for Zanzibar. So I started working at Abe's, uh, the downstairs, before they even opened Zanzibar. I started working at Abe's like a year and a half before they opened Zanzibar. And I was working down there. I was doing the off nights. Uh, Gerald T was the house jock. He would do the weekends. Um, and we had some other people playing in between. Mumbles, I think used to do this. There was a DJ named Mumbles. Oh, I remember Mumbles. I forgot about him. Wow. Yeah, I remember that. It was night on Thursdays uh, at there. Um, so we had a different job. Even, you know, believe it or not, a lot of people don't know, but Freddie Sannon from, from you know, from Timmy Regisford fame and, and you know, Shelter Records and Shelter the Club, he used to play there. Freddie Sannon used to play at, at Abe's also with us. So um, what we had was I was doing that, and then for some reason, uh, Miles wanted to do something with the upstairs ballroom. Gerald T. had mentioned to him and said, listen, you can turn that up that ballroom into a club. He said, you know, I'm making money with it now. Why? He said, well, no, you can make a lot more money, really, seriously. So he thought about it. He said, oh, hey, maybe I should. So he already had Richard Long that did the sound system. So Richard Long already had done the first floor. He did a great job. They had their dance floor on the first floor of eight. It was a lit up dance floor. It would light up. But the sound system was all, you know, it was all Richard. It was amazing. For a small club, it was amazing. And then Richard told him, well, listen, if you want to do this, I'm going to take you to New York show you a club so you can get an idea of what I can do. So he right. took him to the garage. And when he took Miles Ooh. to the garage, Miles was like, oh, it's over. It's over. He's like, I want to bring this to Jersey. So then Miles said, nope, do what you got to do. I want to bring this sound system to Jersey. So then Richard Long was in. Uh, Industrial Lighting, I think, was the one that did the lightings at the time for us. They came in. They did the light show. I mean, he spent the bucks, you know. And he did it right. I mean, before what it was a ballroom. He used to rent it out for weddings and all kinds of stuff on the second floor of the Lincoln Hotel. So then they took it, they gutted it out, they did everything they had to do. I think a little bit over six months they were finished, actually, believe it or not. A little bit, but because he had the money, you know, he had everybody coming. He had, you know, electricians, 
uh, uh, carpenters, sound guys, lighting, everything all working together. You know, let's get this done, basically, pretty much. So it got finished. And when we first were going to open, it was going to be Thorne's turntable in there. But um, Richard Long just got into mod uh, modifying the 1200s. So he said, no, let's put the 1200s in there. So when we first opened, opening day, we had the modified 1200s. That's what we had. We had three 1200s. We had the RLL, uh, RLA crossover. We had the Bozak mixer. We had the DBX boombox. Um, we had the Technics reel-to-reel, uh, -reel, um, pretty much. We had a, a cassette also. So, you know, we had the setup pretty much. Can I can I stop you for a second? Yeah. Everybody, which 1200 version did you have in the opening? The first one, the, the one that worked, you know, he modified them. He modified them. So they weren't like the first ones. And what he did was, uh, I'm not sure if it, it was before all the other marks came, you know, Mark two, Mark. It was the one with the two pots, the two, the two, the two round pots. Everybody's we used Correct. to call them 1200 A's. They were never A's, but that was the original name. 1200. Correct. Or the one with the slider pitch. He's talking. Exactly. That's why everybody know that. You're going, Oh yeah. MK twos. No, they weren't out yet. They weren't out yet. So the first, the first of all, he modified them. He took it. He took out the quartz on them. So then, then you can slow them down, speed them up with your finger without a problem. Um, yeah. Tell everybody why he took out that quartz lock. Because that's a when it was quartz lock, you can't slow it down, you know, and or speed it up. It it just it it won't do it. It's locked in. It's it just it, it, it jerks. Yeah, exactly. It jerks. It fight. You're fighting with the turntable. So by by taking that out, basically, it allowed it to become closer. It wasn't like a belt-driven turntable, but it was closer to a belt-driven turntable like a thorn. You could slow it down, you could speed it up without a problem. That's what it was. Basically. That's funny because when I went there first time, I saw thorns in there, but I'll let you talk about that. Go ahead. Exactly. So then opening night was August 29th, 1979, right? Um, so I'm the opening jock. I opened it up. Um, and when I when I go there, they already had the first floor open, um, and uh, Gerald T. was playing on the first floor. And we had WNGR doing a live remote. Um, uh, NBC TV, you know, came in recording and stuff like that. And Hippie. they went all out. They spent money on their advertising. They really went out on the advertising. Hippie, is that Gerald T. Gordon downstairs? Yeah, Gerald, yeah. Exactly. That worked with Tony, right? All those years with the Kiss yeah, show? Yeah. Everybody, Gerald. He, was, you know, he was the house jock to, to the club. I want and people to know that. From the very beginning. He was there before even Miles bought the club. He was there pre-Miles, basically. You know what I mean? So, that's what it was. And, you know, he kept he kept them on and he was he was the house jock forever there. Um, anyway, so he was playing downstairs and we had NGR doing the thing. So when I go upstairs to start playing, I mean, it's already the line is down the block. You know what oh, I mean? Jesus. Down the block. And people Your heart's going like this. this. Yeah. <laughs> right. So Man. I just I come in, I, I go upstairs, you know what I mean? And they start letting people in because, you know, they have to open the gate downstairs. It was gated. So they open it. And they're coming in and they're pouring in and pouring in and pouring in. It's like <laughs> filling up quite, quite quickly and stuff. And I, I'm already started playing. And then I have um, um, one of the Bell, uh, from, from Cool and the Gang, Bell. I forgot his name. One of the Ronald, Ronald Bell? Or yeah, Ronald Bell. Ronald he was in the booth with me. He came to hang out. Uh, Tasha Thomas was hanging out. Shoot um, me with your love. Wow. Yeah, yeah she was just hanging out. Um, and then um, uh, Joe Robinson was there. And he was like, listen, I have this record that we only played a week ago in Texas. It hasn't been played anywhere in the New York area. We'd like you to play it and stuff. 
And Gerald told me he had played it earlier downstairs. He said, yeah, it's a good record, man. You can you, you play it. So, Hippie, wait a minute. Hang on, Papa. One second. Yeah. People who never went to Zanzibar, this, because I, I want you to explain it. How was it that you walked in the club? You went because I remember you go downstairs and it, you didn't open upstairs for a while. Right. So what was the club politics? Why they do that? Well, what they did was the, the, the first opening was on the outside of the building on the side. OK. And what they did was they set it up so people would make the line outside um, towards the parking lot in the back. So in other words, we have more building that way. So it's allowed more people to stand in that side of the building. So okay. That's why they made the entrance that way. And then when you go in, there was a little window there where you pay, you pay your money, and then you're walking straight into Abe's, the first floor. And right. The reason why they, they waited is because they wanted to make sure they got a lot of people on the first floor. So it looks crowded. It already looks crowded. But, I mean, they were getting crowded anyway. But that's what they, that, that was the thinking behind it. Let's open up the first floor. People will come in. They will drink. They will dance. They will have all this. And then the feature will be opening the upstairs. So then they waited till 11 o'clock at night to open the upstairs. So it was packed on the first floor. So I was already upstairs. I started playing music before they even came in. They opened the gate and they started coming in. And that's how they, that's how they built. And they started doing that all the time. They did yeah, that. that's, that's because I want people to know that. Unless you went, you didn't know. Because they say, oh, they probably just ran into your room. I said, no, no, no. You got to tell it. You got to paint that picture. Tell the whole story. Right, exactly. Nope. Right, and, and when we first opened up, we had the pool open. We had right. all kinds of things. Opening night, we had we had lions in the in the in the in cages as part of the you know the, the opening ceremony. We really? had lions in cages. Yeah, lions in cages. We had a huge python. We had the Le Click Le Click uh, dancers. We had them all there. We had a magician doing around going and walking around doing magic. And then we, as a special treat, we had a uh, monkey, a uh, chimpanzee that can um, roller skate. And his name was Zippy. Oh, Zippy. no. So it was Hippy and Zippy. And I was competing <laughs> with this monkey because this monkey can roller skate. I mean, I am not kidding. We would play the song. He can roller skate forward, backwards. He did tricks, everything. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this is what this is what opening night was. It, was, it truly was a circus. It was yeah, a circus exactly. came to town. It, it was it was perfect. You know what I mean? It was like memorable. Nobody's gonna forget that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I bet I wouldn't have forgot that if I was there. Oh no way! It was great. Yeah, that's the way it used to be. You know, like I said, and then that was the policy basically. Now I was there for the first three months. It was me and Gerald T. I would do Fridays, and Gerald T. would do Saturdays upstairs, and we would switch. Um, you know, downstairs. But then after three months, you know, I kept on telling them to bring in Al Murphy because Al Murphy was the premier promoter, you know, in Jersey at the time, um, in North. So, you know, Miles didn't want to at first because, you know, he was making plenty of money. He was like, why do I got to bring in a promoter? You know, honestly. Well, what's the reason why? Well, let's clarify that. Pre to that, club owners like your Rebels or Michael Brody didn't believe in promotion. They right. did. They built the club, built the DJ. The DJ became big. The club got big. Club got bigger. The DJ got bigger. And then you mentioned about bringing out Murphy. And why are you bringing out Murphy? And why would he even agree to that? Because Miles looking at it like, hey, yo, Papa, we're rolling bankrolling here. Are you crazy? Exactly. I can just hear. I got to split my money with him. I ain't splitting shit. You know how they are. I ain't splitting nothing. Yep. Go ahead. 
So when we first started and he agreed to it, he agreed to it on an off night. He said, okay, okay fine. We'll bring Al Murphy in for Wednesday nights. So, and then Al said, okay, if I'm going to do Wednesday nights and we want to make it right, we want to make it big, I want to bring in Larry LeVan to be the opening job to play. Okay. Now, before then, Larry could not play anywhere. He was strictly garage. They would not let him allow him to play anywhere else, anywhere. It was strictly garage. But we, you know, uh, Miles and Al Murphy, and they were pretty good in with Brody and them. So they agreed to it, you know. So they let out, you know. Larry which is Larry. shocking. Which was shocking because Jersey's still too close for, for Michael Brody. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? It was too close. Yeah. In a sense, in his mind. Right, right. So they allowed it. And then um, that's what they had. They had, uh, it started Wednesday nights. And um, Al Murphy was there. And he brought in uh, Larry LeVan. They did the Wednesday night opening. Larry only lasted for about a month. He didn't want to do it after a month. He was like, no, I got, you know, he had his club. This club was big. You know what I mean? He was like, I don't need to be here on a Wednesday night. You know what I mean? So he just did it for like a month. And they they switched it over. And then Larry Patterson took over for him for Wednesday nights. Um, but it, it got the Wednesday nights going for them. Um, and then once we were there for about a, a couple of months, uh, Al Murphy was like, you know what? Uh, we need you to be the DJ on Fridays and Saturdays. You know, we, we can't have you and Gerald T switching places. And I was, I was never that kind of jock. I was never one, you know, New York, they're very competitive. I would never go after a job of another job, ever. You know, I never went to any club and say, listen, I'm better than that jock. Uh, maybe you want to hire me. Or here, here's my tape. If you, you know, if you decide to get rid of him, hire me. I was never like that. <laughs> but Al Murphy was like, we have to do this. This is what we have to do for the club itself. So what was the politics behind it? Who had the Friday and Saturdays? Well, you- like I said, Friday and Saturday was... Um, um, once, once, once Al started making money for him on Wednesdays, then after a while, um, uh, Miles let him manage all the time. Originally, the manager um, was Desmond, which was the uh, manager for the bar tent for the bar downstairs. He was the manager of the whole thing, Zanzibar. Desmond was the original DJ, and then later on, um, when Miles came in and took over, then he started taking over the up the Friday and Saturdays and all the nights at Zanzibar. So then I, I talked to Miles and Miles like, well, okay, you know, here, I guess Miles, uh, I have talked to him already. He said, okay, yeah, I'm going to bring you in, but I'm going to have to pay more money to Gerald now too. I said, do what you got to do. <laughs> so Gerald got more money, but, you know, he didn't like the fact that I ended up doing Friday and Saturdays. But that was just Miles' move. I mean, not Miles, Al Murphy's move. You know, that's what he wanted, basically, pretty much. So, um, and Al Murphy. Because well, in a business sense, he knew that you pulled the crowd. Well, yeah, yeah. Because nobody does that unless you're pulling the numbers. That's just the way it is. That's true. That is true. Um, But but it's also because Al Murphy, like most promoters, has their own DJs. Right. And their favorites. And and Al Murphy's DJ was Larry Patterson. So his ulterior motive was eventually to get Larry in there. Okay. So I lasted the first year and a half with that situation for a year and a half there. And then after me, um, they brought Larry, and then after Larry, they brought in T. Scott. But in between, though, they had, uh, for a period, they had David Morales, they had Francois K. also DJ there. They were all different jacks that played there. And then eventually, it ended up with uh, T. Scott doing the weekend, and uh, Larry Patterson was doing Wednesday. I remember Naeem was also alternating with David Morales. Naeem used to alternate, I think, with Morales. Yeah. On that night, on the Wednesday nights or something. Right. They were alternating right. week to week, Naeem Johnson, right? 
Right, exactly. Yeah, they had a couple of different people come in and do it. Exactly. Yeah. They were trying to figure. I think what I always felt like they were trying to figure out who was the clerk. You know, who was going to be the right person to make that room stay packed. Right. Exactly. And that was the end of the day for them. It's not about music. It's about how much do we make. Exactly. How much money can we pull in? Who's going to bring the numbers? Basically. Correct. Pretty much. Yeah. That's it. That's exactly what it was. So how long did it stay Abe's Disco before the, the name change and all that happened? I think it was at least 10 years and then it went to Brick City. But it was a it was Zanzibar for at least 10 years. Yeah. Right. So it opened up as Abe's. Right. And then when did it change over officially from Abe's to Zanzibar? Was, yeah, August 29th, 1979. So that because pre-1979, the downstairs was Abe's Disco, right? And now it became Zanzibar. You know, Zanzibar, the club, you know, the Abe garage of New it, but Zanzibar was the club. Yeah. <laughs> Zanzibar, the garage of New Jersey. Zanzibar. <laughs> he used to go, you haven't bought it unless you go to Zanzibar. I remember the commercial BLS. Oh, God. OK, and, and so there's a funny story there on, on the Wednesday, because what happened was Tony, Tony was invited to come and hang out because he used to hang out with with um, um, obviously uh, Chef, right? Chef Pettibone. Right. Chef Pettibone used to do 98 before Tony. And then he gave it to Tony. He said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to leave this. You can take it over. You're going to take over doing the, uh, the show on uh, 98.7 on Kiss. So they used to hang out together and then Chef came to Zanzibar. So him and Larry were friends, Larry Patterson. So they're like, Tony, you got to come out and check out this club. So Tony was like, really? Jersey? I don't even want to pick it. He was a New York guy. So was, That's right. He said, Jersey? What? Jersey's like, I don't, I don't want to go to Jersey. No, I don't want to go to Jersey. But he said, okay, fine. I'll hang out with you guys. So he went. And as soon as he went in and saw the place, he was, oh, my God, this is like the garage of Jersey. You know what I mean? Pretty much. He says, I've got to play here. you got to let me play here. So he really, really wanted to play. So eventually, Larry gave him, you know, he gave him the Wednesday night to try. He said, okay, let's try it. They were, oh, and I didn't tell you how they switched. When we first opened, remember, they were the, the 1200s. They didn't get switched until Larry Levan came to do the one thing that guest spot because Larry wanted the thorns. So then at that point, you know, um, that's when they said, okay, so let's switch them out. And they switched them to thorns, you know, and I had no problem with either one because I had played with both of them over the years. So, but Larry wanted the thorns, and that's when they, that's when they switched to the thorns. And then from that point on, it was thorns. Anyway, so when Tony comes to play, they're throwing turntables. Tony never played on throwing turntables. So Tony goes to play, and he is so bad. He's like, oh, my God. They're looking at him like, what is wrong with this guy? And he was, he felt bad. You know, he was like, oh, my God, what is going on here? So he begged uh, uh, Patterson for a second chance. He said, listen, I know I was horrible, but I guarantee you I will be better. I am not this bad. I'm telling you, I am not this bad. I can hear him saying it too, just like that. Exactly. I can and hear him going like this, like how he talks with his hand. I'm not this bad. They gave him a second chance. And, you know, he got I'm better. I'm shocked. Because like, normally they would never give you a second chance. Never. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Larry said, okay, I'm going to give you a second chance. He gave him a second chance. He practiced. He got better at it. He played it smart. He didn't try to do those crazy kind of things. He tried to blend records that are easy to blend with each other. And that's how he used to write it. And, you know, he worked it out. He figured out exactly what to do. You know, and then he ended up being the uh, the doctor on Wednesday nights. And then eventually, I'm not sure. because I, I one, you know, one thing about back then that people don't understand is I never got to hear Nicky Siano play. I never did. Because once I started DJing at, at Docs and stuff, from that point on, that was my job. 
there was no weekend or weekdays most of them where I was off. <clears throat> I would work like Wednesday through Sunday. Okay. So it wasn't like I had time. Oh, yeah, let me go hang out and listen to this guy play. The only time I ever heard other jocks play was when we had the pool parties. So those would be on a Monday night or on a Tuesday night. And I got to go to the garage and hear Larry play. Or, you know, I would hear somebody else play in another place, that kind of thing. But in general, DJs back then, they didn't really hang out. It wasn't, you know, if you were a real DJ, you were working. You were working a lot. You know, you had a lot of gigs. You know, you basically didn't get to hear a lot of people. Now, if your early days, you're just beginning. Yeah, you got plenty of free time. You can go like I did. I used to go to Hollywood and listen to Richie and all them. But once I was steady working, they were done. There was no time for me to go listen to anybody. I was just working and that was it. Right. Well, that makes sense. And you know what? And this is the thing. When you say Wednesday to Sunday, you were opening and to close. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like you had, you know, oh, I'm going to bring the guests in. They're going to have a guy warm up. No, you would start from the first record to the last record each and every night, right? Exactly. You played all night. There was no, you know, I mean, uh, Larry was, you know, he used to, he used to have um, Pipino sometimes open up for him. Yeah, right. Some people have people do that, you know, that kind of thing. Opens up, open open up for them. Um, But in general, most of the jocks played all night. You know what I mean? Pretty much. Yeah, that's what they did. So as the timeline goes... You know, I guess we know that Larry Patterson and T. Scott and Tony Humphreys, and they create their mystique and, right, exactly. and everything goes. Where do you leave from there? Where do you start to roll to? So when I when I leave um, uh, Zanzibar, I still had docks that were still open. So then when I went back there. I just went back there, fit right in back with my crowd. It was like, you know, it was always crowded. So I didn't have to worry about trying to build up a crowd or anything. I already had a built-in crowd. So I did that, and then <clears throat> two years later, Mike McKnight, which from the Brothers Three, was working down the shore uh, for Jerry Rotunda, which was at the Blue Grotto. So uh, there was a club in Seaside Heights called the Blue Grotto, and then Jerry Rotunda uh, was the manager there. So he brought in Mike McKnight, and then he was like, you know, I got this guy that I think you know you might want to bring down. So he mentioned my name. So then I went and I talked to him. And, you know, he said, all right, let's try you out. So I started playing and he liked what I did. He liked what I did. So I ended up going down the shore and that was before the Jersey Shore guys or any of that crap. We're talking about 83. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's way before it happened. Way before these, you know, these crazy guys took it over. Um, And we did the Blue Grotto. And then what happened was from there, he ended up at Temptations, which was the big club back then. He ended up managing that club, being part of that. So once he did that, he brought me in there to play. He had Mike McKnight there to play. So we were playing there. Um, and I did that until this is the weirdest thing. This Listen how they got he, we, they got the club switch. So uh, Jerry's the owner of, and running the manager. of. So we're going in to play one weekend. And when we go in, um, Eugene Atrana, which is the manager of Chicago's in Lodi, New Jersey, comes in with like three big... Gambino guys, you know what I mean? And they get on the dance floor, like in three corners with their hands crossed. And he gets in the middle of the floor and he says, we are now the owners of this club. I kid you not. To the staff. We were A hostile takeover. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. exactly. He, went, he just went to the middle of the floor. We are now the owners of this club. And everybody's like, what's going on here? He says, I am going to talk to each one of you individually. As I go to the back, so one at a time, one of you will come and we'll talk and we'll see what's going on. 
So he talked to everybody about, you know, staying on, you know, we, you know, we got this. So I was real cocky. I was young and cocky, you know, think feeling my oats. I was like, I ain't gonna work for this guy unless he thinks he's gonna, he's gonna pay me what I want. You know what I mean? That's the way I felt. So when I go in there, I said, listen, I'm the best you're gonna get down here. Okay, this is what I want, and you need to pay this. And he was like, Whoa. <laughs> he said, Well, listen, he says, I'll do this. I'll pay you what you want tonight. I'll let you play. And if you like what you're doing, I'll keep you up. So I played that night. At the end of the night, we went back to the thing and we had our conversation. He says, Listen, I love what you're doing. You're the best DJ I've heard, but I can't afford what you want. I can give you this, but I can't give you that. I said, nope, sorry, I'm out, bye. And I, and I left. <laughs> but when I left, the per- the guy that was doing the sound down in Seaside Heights was another great audio engineer, uh, Mike Canaccio. Mike Canaccio. Oh, Mike Canaccio. Wow. He did That's- all the sound down the shore. What was Mike Canaccio's uh, name of the company he had again? Um... Uh, Not Boho. That's design, the, uh, design environment or something like design that. Design environment, design lab, something. Yeah, I remember. He, wow, that's a long time. Mike Canaccio. I haven't heard that name in a long time. Yeah, Mike did all the sound on the shorts. He did all the club. And he was serious. His sound was tight, really tight. Really yeah, tight. comparing to what was around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, he was really good. Um, so so I told Mike, I said, listen, I'm not there. So see if any many any clubs want to um uh want to have me as a DJ. So he mentioned it to the club Hollywood, which had just opened up like six months before. And the funny thing about Hollywood was that it had a DJ there that was good. But we went to after we finished playing in our clubs, we used to go to the diner. So there was a diner in Tom's River over the, uh, the bridge. and We would go to the diner. So we went to the diner and my, my light man at the time was Wilson Gomez. Right. He was my light man. This guy was a character. All right. So what he did was we went to eat to the diner and we're sitting in a booth. Behind me is the DJ from Hollywood with some girl there. Oh, God. Right? And he's like, I don't know why they're paying this guy hippie so much money. I don't know. I don't know why, who they, they think he is. He's not like, you know, he's not all that. So he's saying this, and I'm, we're laughing in my booth because I'm wearing this side listening to it. But Wilson is a character, and he gets up. He says, hey, what's happening? Let me introduce myself. My name is Hippie Torales. The guy turns, changed colors. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's like, oh, how you doing? Huh? How you doing? I'm so glad to meet you and stuff. He may believe it was me. <laughs> It scared the crap out of the guy. I bet. I think he would have been startled too. I mean, I'm like, huh? It was hilarious. But I, but I had to get up and I said, listen, he's he's faking it. I'm I'm the I'm, I'm the and stuff I'm like that. So then I met him and stuff. But when Hollywood came and the situation was there, I had no problem because this guy was talking crap about me. I had no problem taking his job. You know, I didn't go for it. But when they offered it, I said, fine, I'll take it. It's mine. That's how life is. You know what? It's I mean? mine. That's it. That's how life yeah. is. <laughs> Well, the way life is, you know, you lose some, you win some. It's, it. part, it's part of the game. It, it, it's it's part of the game. That's it. That's it. I tell people all the time, I, you know, one of the issues I had back then with, with the club scene back there is that the jocks really thought I was getting too much money. They're really down the shore because remember, I mean, they used to get paid, but, you know, I was I was making $1,000 a week. So back then we're talking about 83. They're like, that's a lot of money. You know what I mean? So they're like, wow, this guy's getting paid. Why is he getting paid so much? And I always say what Todd Terry says, you're worth what you can get. You know, if they feel that they can get somebody else. Believe me, they'll do it. That person. They'll do it in a heartbeat. I've seen it happen many times. But if they want you and you ask for $1,000, they're going to pay $1,000 because they feel you're worth that. 
You know what I'm saying? That's the way it is. Now, hang on, because you're dealing also, remember, you're dealing with Italian mafia down there. Yeah, yeah, I know. And they want the best. Yeah, and they pay. One thing I got to say, they will pay. I have never had issues. I never. I never had I issues. I everybody that. When they came to get in those envelopes, they'd come with the envelope, put it right in your pocket, never say a word. Here you go. That's right. That's Done. right. But when they got angry yeah. and you got a call, <laughs> try to keep, you, keep your nose clean. That's it. That's, That's all it. I would say. Just keep your nose clean. Keep your mouth shut. Just do your job. Don't start some shit. That's right. That's right. That's true. Exactly. But you know what's funny in those days? Everybody got paid. Everybody worked. And you know what? Yes, it's not the best situation, but everybody had a job. Yeah, but but one thing I got to tell you, because they thought it was quite different to what I was actually making. When I used to work at Zanzibar and I was the DJ there, I was making $35 a night. That was it. That's what I was making. I was making $70 a week when I first started there. It wasn't until that year, like, remember, that was 79. Once 80 came around and I won the Billboard Award. That changed everything. That changed everything. Then I said, okay, now you got to pay me. He said, okay, well, now nah, we've got to pay you. You know what I mean? But before that, <laughs> you know, and when he paid you're me. Making as much, you're making as much as the guy pushing the broom. Right, right, exactly. And, and the funny thing is when he paid me, then Gerald got another boost of his salary. had to boost up. So Gerald can't complain. You know what I mean? He got boosted. <laughs> Every time I got paid, he got another boost. <laughs> Gerald Gordon, where are you, man? He's probably watching this laughing. Probably laughing right now and saying, oh, God, help us. <laughs> but it was good. But as we go, I know, and then also, I know not too long after the studio stuff begins for you, because I remember you a, a big remix happened. You know, yeah, one, yeah. one of the biggest gospel records I'll let you go into that in a minute, you know, happened on that timeless, right? Around, when you said 80, 81, 82, I, I'm saying yeah. I could hear it. Yeah. Doom. Well, what happened was, what happened was, um, um, me and George became, um, we started, decided to start doing mixes together, like sort of together, the two of us. And we didn't have anybody offer anything yet, but but George was a good friend with Ray Caviano. Which George are we talking about? Very George, Rodriguez. George Rodriguez. Okay, buddy. You know, from Garden State Record Pool. Um, he was a good friend with Ray Caviano. So he told Ray, you know, let us do some mixes. So Ray let us do one of his mixes. The first record was something called Born to Be Wild. Remember the old rock record, Born to Be Wild? By I think the group was Star Something, Star Child, something like that it was called. So we did that mix for him and um it was all right, it came all right, but we got we started getting you know studio experience because back then, unlike now. You actually used to go into a recording studio to do a mix. It wasn't a home. You didn't have a home studio. You know what I mean? You didn't have any of that crap. You had an engineer in the studio that did all the engineering. You didn't do any of the engineering. He did it. Basically, what you did, you were in there to rearrange the song in whatever format you wanted with him, you know, extending the intro, extending the break, you know, making some instruments play, some instruments not play. But other than that, you weren't in there reproducing or changing all the instruments and any of that. In those early days, you used whatever instruments were on the 24 track, and then you just rearranged them whatever way you wanted to. And that's what the engineer. Now, um, uh, Walter Gibbons and, and Tom Savarese used to have people come in and add extra percussion on their tracks and stuff like that, but that was it. It wasn't like a whole new song being written on top of something. 
But here's the deal. Now you got the original multi-track from the group, from like Ray with a Gabe set the multi-tracks over. So you got the four-minute radio, well, whatever, the four-minute album version, right? What was the thought process to making this extended play? How did you get something that translated from a four-minute version to a seven-and-a-half, eight, nine-minute version? Right. Well, what they would do is <clears throat> the first thing that would happen was the engineer would start basically pretty much working on the sound. So he would start usually with the bass, cleaning it up, see if there's any leaks, any noise in the background, gating it so that leaks are gone. And he would clean that up, and he would probably go to the the, the, the snare, the hat. He would work his way across until he had everything as clean as he possibly can. And and then we he would start working on levels to you know, get a feel for how it would sound overall. Um, once we got that up, then the rest was, okay, now we want to do an intro. So let's say we want just the drums to play for like 16 bars. So what he would do is we would mute every instrument on the board. We would do a pass onto a quarter inch tape, basically pretty much right. With just those drums. Once he had those drums, if we wanted to go to another section, we had to unmute those buttons to start that next section. When we did that, we do another pass. And what he would do is take that first quarter inch with the drums and the other part and splice them together with a splicer to match them up and put tape on it. This is the engineer doing this. You guys still, you still weren't touching no grease pen, no blades yet, nothing. None of that. We didn't do any of that. That's all the engineer. They did all of it. You know, we didn't touch anything. Basically, you were there, let the engineer do his thing, then we're there to do our mix the way we wanted to go, and that's it. We didn't even have control over, you know, pretty much. I mean, if we wanted something a little louder, yeah, but in general, it was the engineer would get a good mix going and then we would work from there. That was it. That's all it was back then as far as remixing. It wasn't like now. You know, you didn't control everything. You didn't control anything. You just, <laughs> you were just sort of arranging and that was it. Right. You were rearranging the project then really remixing it in a exactly. sense, right? So, yeah. So after we did that, then he gave us the uh, uh, Jimmy Ross going to a trance. So we did that. And when we did that, then that got radio play. That became like something that the radio started playing a lot. So we got a little recognition. So we did that and we were doing little odd things in there, doing little different mixes and stuff like that. And then what happened was around 82, 83, um, people that used to, patrons that used to go to my club, docs, they went to um, down to Washington. And the DJs down there were playing the, you know, the Clark Sisters, You Brought the Sunshine. It was like an anthem in Washington. So they brought it back and they said, you got to play this. You know, and they brought copies for me. They brought copies for Larry LeVan. They brought copies for Larry Patterson. They brought copies for everybody. They brought them back and they gave it to us. They're like, you got to play this. So they gave us the copy. They gave me the copy that played it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's nice. And they were like, they were getting into it every week more and more. It was getting, you know, bigger and bigger because we were all playing it. Larry, me, Larry Patterson, we were playing it. So once it got to the point that I saw, well, this is getting kind of intense. I decided to call the label and say, you know what? I, I, like, I like to do a mix on this. So I called up the label. They were in Detroit, um, and I told them, listen, my name is so-and-so. I've done so Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, 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 wait. What's the name of the label? Westbound. For the original. What label. other superstar disco records were on that label before you called? Because I know you must have looked at it and said, hmm, mm -hmm. Westbound. Right, exactly. You had CJ and company on there with Devil's Gone yeah, and we got our own thing. You had a bunch of groups. And yeah. you were running those records every yeah. week, correct? Yeah. So you yeah. must have saw this thing and went, what's this, right? Because I would have done the same thing. I would have been like, 
So you well, call was, when I, I saw, and remember that when when they did that and I called the label, I, I'm I'm thinking to myself, okay, hopefully I can get this mix. So so I'm talking to the guy and he's like, okay, you want to do a mix on this? Okay, we can do that. Um, he says, you know, how are we gonna do this? I said, what's up to you? What do you want me to do? I said, I need the masters. He said, well, we can fly you out here. You know, you can do the mix here in Detroit. So I'm like, okay, fly. Let's do that. So they flew me out to Detroit. He said, do you need anything? I said, I just wanted, at that time, we started adding keyboards. So I said, I just want a keyboard player. Who was the keyboard player? Um, so they, they hired a guy. He came in. And I didn't even have him do anything. All I wanted to do was fatten up the, the keyboards. So I just had him play the same keys that they had on organ just to fatten it up. That was it. That was it. So then I went in, did the mix, you know, for them. But before I did the mix, that day when I called them, the next day I was calling for follow-up with them because we were doing he told me the next day, he said, oh, listen, there was somebody called today for this guy named Tony Humphreys that he wants to do a mix on this. And I told him, no, we already got you doing this. So I beat Tony Humphreys by one day on that mix. What? One day. If not, smoke. <laughs> one day. By one day. I beat him by one day. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this guy, this other guy from New, New, New York, New Jersey call. You know him? Tony Humphreys. Yeah, like, yeah I know who it is. Yeah, yeah I know it is. <laughs> so, and then once I did that mix, that's the one that really blew up. You know, that blew up. No, I know that. Yeah, that's man. why. I, that's why I was waiting for you to mention that record. Yeah, uh, the Clash Sisters. You bought the sunshine, and it was. It's and, and it's still a classic. You know, in oh. club in the club world, it's still a classic. Yeah, without a doubt. It's it's one of those staple records. You want to make yeah. the crowd go nuts? Yeah. Play that record. Watch what happens. Just yeah. get ready. Yeah, exactly. So so. Okay, so it goes top 40 radio, it goes R&B radio. I remember BLS was playing on rotation, New York, New Jersey. It starts to take off. What happens after that to your career now, as far as now? as Now you're a remixer. You right. know, modified, right. you know, you've been remixing. But now you're what we call the household name. Right. You know, Morales, you know, these names. Here we go, Shep. Hippie's right. in the, now Hippie's in the, in the, in the ring now. Right. So go ahead, Hippie. Take us on. So then from that point, I, I started doing some more mix. I did some small label kind of thing. It wasn't like the majors were calling right away. And, oh, yeah, we got to get you to mix. It was more a small label kind of thing doing. But I was still doing my clubs because what happened, the clubbing took off a little more. I, I was doing more clubs. I was getting more gigs, you know, that kind of thing. So that took off, and I was doing that. And then it wasn't until 88 that Joe... Rodriguez, who owned Music Village Record Shop in Jer in Newark. Oh yeah, Music Village Record Shop. Um, he that said, was where I got my copy. That was the only place you could get it. Nobody yeah. in New York had. I had to go to Jersey to buy my copy. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I I used to love Music Village. That's why I used to get my music. I it's remember funny. that. I didn't really go to moving with Abby because I had Music Village right here. He was the only one that had copies. Yeah. Nobody else had. Well, great. Well, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. That's all right. So then he tells me listen, you know, you've been doing this a long time. Why don't you do your own song? He wanted me to do my own song. So I was like, you know what? Okay, I'll try it. So I borrowed a keyboard and a drum machine that my partner had, Nelson Butchinetis, he had in his house because he had a keyboard. So I borrowed them, I took them home, and I started working on this bass line, you know, the bass line, and then putting some little drums together for it. So I get that done, and I finished that that day, and I start working on lyrics. So like in a day and a half, I wrote, you know, you're going to miss me. So I wrote the song, you know, I had the bass line and the drums and then I took it to him. I played a little bit. I heard it. He said, okay, yeah, let's do that. 
So he, we booked time at um, Sensation Studios, which Sensations was a club actually um, at the time, Club Sensations, but they had a recording studio in the back, right? Now, the reason why, and mind you, uh, Kelly Willoughby was the owner, right? And originally they had the club downstairs on the first floor called New Experience. That was the original club there. And then he made some money and he brought the upstairs. He brought the whole building, the whole block. It was pretty much. That's how right. big the club was. He brought that. And mind you, he made a lot of money from one song that he actually produced. It was uh, one of the, as far as the producers and the publishing company, which was called The Roof is on Fire. He produced that song and made so much money for him. He was able to go and invest and buy the building. That's how much money. It was an anthem. That was a that was a, not only a club anthem, but that was an anthem in every which way. Oh yeah, it was a huge, huge. Oh god, it crossed everybody, and everybody played it no matter what set you were, whatever club you heard. The roof, the roof, yeah. the roof is on fire. Everywhere you heard that everywhere. Oh god, so, so they had a, they had a studio, Sensation Studio, and Paul Scott was the engineer for him. So I go in, and Paul Scott and. Paul Scott is half of BOP. I was going to say, brothers of peace, everyone. Yeah. Get your get your pen and paper out where the education's going. So Paul Scott uh, uh, was the, the engineer there. So I said, you know, I got this song and I want to do it. So we go in, we start working on the music and the bass. And I, you know, he, I tell him, I need some keyboards. So he laid, I said, I want to So he played the keyboard. He said, like this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he played the keyboards. We started getting everything together. Um, it started coming together. And then... Um, uh, we needed to put the lyrics down. So I said, listen, I'm going to demo it. So whoever comes to sing it, they'll know how to do it. So I, I put the vocals in. I do it. Um, and I take it to Joe. I say back, listen, listen, this is what I got. I'm gonna, now we'll find a singer thing. And he says, listen, it sounds fine. We don't even know. Yeah, right. It sounds fine with this. He says, it's fine. Just like that. Just keep it just like that. I said, really? Seriously? I said, like, hey, no. He said, yeah, do. So we kept it. That's how that's why I ended up singing. It wasn't because I wanted to. I wanted to get a singer to come in and do it. It's just that he said, just keep your voice on it. I said, okay, fine. So we do the song. We finish it. We get it all together. Um, and we release it. So we sell about seven, I think 7,000 in the U.S. But while with what's happening here is nothing, because radio is not playing it or anything. But overseas in the U.K. and in, in France, it's blowing up. I mean, it's, yeah. it's played everywhere. It just, like, changed their whole scene for the summer. That was, like, the summer song for them. So... While that's happening, I get a call from um, Dave Lee, you know, which is Joey Negro. You know what I mean? He was the owner of Republic Records at the time. Mm-hmm. So him and his partner call me and they're like, we would like to sign your song, you know, for release in the UK on our label. And Republic was being distributed by Rough Trade at the time. That was the big distributor for them. Um, so we're like, yeah, why not? You know, I didn't know what was going on until Benji came up came back from touring, you know, up there. And he said, dude, your song is blowing up in the UK. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, no, it's everywhere. So when I came back and he said, yeah, let's do that. We said, okay, fine, let's sign it with them. So we signed with them. And then two days later, Virgin Records comes looking to, <laughs> to sign it, which would have been a lot bigger. <laughs> but we already had signed with Republic. So it was fine, you know what I mean? We did it. Um, they put the song out and the song was, you know, pretty big up there. It didn't reach the top 10 or it didn't even reach the top 40. I think it entered at number 43 or the highest 42, but it sold over 2 million units. You know what I mean? It was a huge record everywhere it played. And that, that got me to touring overseas. You know what I mean? 
But once once that song came out, I ended up, they were like, you know, listen, we're going to bring you here for a tour. You know what I mean? To do different areas with the club. I said, all right, fine. I'm, I'm ready. I can, I can DJ. Because like I said, I was not there to sing. So the first uh, gig they get me in, in England was with Nikki Holloway, right? And I think, um, what's his name? Pete Tong. So they have this huge place they're doing. I'm going, it's out. I mean, the line they have is all the way around the block. So I go in and uh, with Dave Lee with me and stuff like that. Um, and we go in and I'm thinking I'm going to DJ. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, that's what I am. That's what I'm waiting to hear. That's what I'm waiting to hear. And what happens? So I go in and, you know, I'm ready to DJ. And they're like, you know, uh, they're asking Dave, no, we want him to perform. And I'm like, perform? I'm not a performer. You know what, what, do, you do? what do you mean perform? I'm performing behind a turntable. They're like, no, we want him to, you know, we want him to sing the song. So like they like, you know, just do it for them. You know, they want. So I said, okay, fine. I'll do it. I didn't mean, prepare nothing or anything. So I got up there. They throw the track on. You know what I mean? And I start singing. But I start singing over the record. But then I realized, oh, the, the song's not ready on the record. So I stopped singing over the record. I'm like, I'll just lip sync. You know what I mean? And let the song go. <laughs> that was singing it. One more time, everybody. It's, you're going to miss me. You're going to turn to me. And I'm up there. And, I, you know, and I'm like, I'm not, you know, it was fine. I did it. I did what I had to do. And then I DJed after that. But that was like from there. Then they took me. They sent me to to um, to Germany. I did Germany. Uh, uh, DJ set in Germany. Then I went to Spain. All that in that one trip. They first made that first trip. I went to Spain. When I went to Spain, the trip was unbelievable at first. I get there. When I get there, they could not book a hotel for me. So they got. In the worst part of town, they got me a hotel for the first. Why would couldn't they? Why couldn't they book you a hotel? Everything was booked for. Oh, because it's middle of summer, right? Yeah, exactly. So everything was booked, so they could not book me. So they found me in the raunchiest hotel you can think of. What? There was no elevator. I had to walk up, and I had back then we were carrying records. Remember? That's right. We were carrying CD. Oh, baby, I remember that records, and they didn't have no bellhop or anything, and no elevator. No elevator, right? Four flights. With luggage, records, everything I had. I went up. When I entered the room, it looked like a, a, a murder scene. The bed, mind you, the bed was on three. The fourth, the fourth leg was down. The bed was at an angle like this. Right? <laughs> the sheets weren't done. Guys, this is a true house stories. This is what true I mean. Like, this, real now. <laughs> this is all like this. The room looked like a mess. The time I was like. I didn't even want to. I was like, no, you can't. And they, I call them. I'm like, this is no, this I can't stay here. They're like, I'm sorry, we can't. Que basura, carajo, niente. He's screaming. Tomorrow we will have you in a beautiful place. It's just we couldn't find anything tonight. So I'm in there and I'm just I'm sleeping with my clothes on. I'm not doing anything. I'm like, I got my clothes on and I'm like. So, you know, so you let me ask you, was it like saying? You've just welcomed yourself into Roach Motel. Once you get in, you can't get out. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was bad. I was. Oh my god! Now Roach like, Motel. This is touring. Oh my god! I think I'm not going to be doing this. I was like, wow, this is touring. But it was unfortunately. But the next day, they were real nice. They had everything. But it was a mess that first time. Um, but I ended up doing there, and then I ended up performing in like their top of the pop show in Spain. So I did the performance. You know, live performance there in Spain, um, and that's what got my career going as far as DJing overseas. But it also got my career going for remixes. Because from doing that, then we started 
we started getting, I, I started getting paid because what happened was I, I, I joined up with Mark Mendoza. You know what I mean? I wanted to do work with Mark because I love what Mark was doing. So I said, let's join up and do stuff together. So we started doing stuff together. So what year, what year officially was that you and Mark um, joined up to work together? I think it was, not, I, 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 I can't remember back the line, but I'm going to say around 92, 93, maybe we started getting together. But you know, it's so funny because at that time, I remember you were not playing that much anymore in, in, in the scene, DJ here. You know, right. yeah, you were right. exactly. doing, you were fine because I was still playing New York and I remember you were going and you would go, stay over there for a while. I right. remember you would yeah. do excursions. Yeah. I would go like long excursions. Right. Yeah, exactly. A couple of months there. you would stay, a couple of months out there. I'm exactly. like, how do you do? I remember asking, you says, well, you know, you just get used to it. I said, I couldn't do it, but I remember you were telling me, you just get used to it. You just That's deal it. with it. It's, it's the touring life, as I say. You know what I mean? That's what you do. You got to do what you got to do. Anyway, so me and Mark got together and then we started doing some mixes and we ended up like um, Eddie Maduro. Remember Eddie Maduro? He used to work for Sin. Remember Sin? Sin Street Information Network. Yeah, yeah. It used to be Vince Pellegrino. Vince Pellegrino. Vince Pellegrino's thing. Yeah, Vince Pellegrino. Yeah, yeah I remember. Eddie Maduro um, um, used to work for him. Yeah. And Eddie Maduro actually started by working at Music Village. He used to work the counter. And then from there, he moved into working for Sin stuff but that's how we started in the music on that end um so eddie got access to some acapellas to rosie Gaines, right now what happened was they wanted remixes because rosie Gaines was the singer who did diamonds and pearls with prince she used to be his she used to be in his band and she used to sing with him on some of the songs so they wanted to create you know a solo career for her so motown took her on and they put an album together for her so her album, they did her first album. So then the first single was I Want You. So they wanted club mixes of that. So Eddie Maduro, working at Sin, he was able to get the acapellas. He got the acapellas, and they wanted him to do a mix. So Eddie said, I used to have a little home, I used to have a home studio like you did. I used to have a home studio in Newark. So he came over, he said, Listen, you know, I want to remix this. I said, all right, just let me know when, just come by and we'll do it. So I've been holding on to these acapellas for like over a month. And Eddie never came. And I was like, you know, Eddie, what's going on? So my wife at the time said, you know what? You and Mark, why don't you do a mix on it, you know, and let, let Eddie turn it in for you guys because it's getting close to deadline time. You know what I mean? You only got like a week left, you know? So then me and Mark did a mix. We did it. And then about a couple of days before it, I told Eddie, I said, Eddie, you know, you haven't been going around it. Me and Mark did a mix on this. Can you turn it in for us for them? And Eddie's like, oh, wait a minute, but I'm supposed to do a mix. So he got together. He said, all right, you know what I'm going to do? Get a mix. He got together with George Mina at George Mina studio. And him and George Mina got together and they did a mix for Rosie Gaines. I want you song. So now they have those songs. And he said, yeah, fine. I'll, I'll include yours in the package. So included our songs, included his song. So they Motown gets the package. They pay it for, they play it for Rosie. She hears our mix of I want you. And she cries. She thinks it's horrible. She's like, oh, my God. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say. She didn't cry in joy. She oh, cried in... She cried in pain. She was like, oh, my God, it's horrible. Why? Why did she cry? What because, happened? You know, we had... Remember, she was singing a down-tempo song. And back then, the, the sampling up or making it faster wasn't that good. It was still munchy. You know, so when you hear the uh, vibrato in a person's voice... <laughs> So it wasn't that, you know, to her, it was like, oh, my God, I sound horrible. What did they do to me? They made me psych a chipmunk. I can hear exactly. her screaming. Exactly. So 
they they give him the package and they're like, oh no, they don't. She doesn't like their song. He, she cries. She does not like their mix. And we were like, you know what? We don't really get paid. We just want our name, you know, on the twelve inch to be included. So they were like, okay, fine. We can include your mix. So they included the mix. So what happens is when they finally put out the twelve inch, there's a mix on there with our name, but it's not our mix. It was an extra mix that George and Eddie had done and turned in, and they got confused in the process. So they put their mix on the 12 inch, but they put our name as far as the credit for it on the promos for that. Our mix never came out. So we still have the song. We're like, okay, fine. We're not getting paid for it anyway. So Camacho was going to England that time. So he told me, listen, you got anything new? So I gave him the song. I said, listen, take this, play it out there, see what happens. So he takes it out. He starts playing it and people like it. And he gets in touch. Paul Trouble Anderson says, listen, I want a copy of this. So Camacho called me from England and says, listen, Paul wants a copy. I said, yeah, fine. Give it to him. That's fine. He gives it to Paul, and Paul blows it up on KISS Radio. He's playing it and becomes one of his anthems. He's playing it constantly. He blows it up so much that Motown England called me and says, we need to put your mix out. Okay? And what's your answer to that? What did you say to Motown England? You got to pay, baby. You got to pay. That's what I said. (laughs) At that point, we got paid. Well, first, it's not, first, it probably wasn't even the payment. First, it's always like the, the New York office said no go because Rosie's like, no. And they're saying, oh, hell no. We need to put this out. I know they thought that's how they spoke over there. Hell no. We need to put this out. Yeah, this, this, is, this is the mix. This, this is the mix, not the other stuff. This is the mix. So, so at that point, they paid. They put the mix out and it, it gave Rosie uh, prestige and blew her up. Started giving her some, uh, um, you know, coverage. So then, um, Bobo had a label in in, in oh yes, Scotland. They call it Scotland called Big Bang Records. Yes, Bobo. Bobo had reached out to us a little bit before that, and we had done a couple of mixes for him. So he decided he wanted to license the next song off that album called "Closer Than Close" from Motown. So they did a special arrangement where they let him license it. Which is shocking. Which is very shocking. Exactly. Exactly. Because they weren't really doing anything with the album. You know what I mean? So they were like, okay, fine. So they, he paid them to license the song to him and, and allowed him to do new mixes. So now comes Closer Than Close. They get the song. Bobo says, I need you guys to do the mix. So he gives it to us. We do the mixes. He gets the mixes. They put them out. It blows her up. She enters number four in the top 10 charts. Oh, I remember that too. Yeah, she does Top of the Pops. Um, she does everything. And that year, she wins Best International Artist at the uh, R&B Awards in England. You know, he, she wins on television and everything, the whole thing. Um, so that made that her career for that. You know what I mean? It just blew her up at that point. But it, like I said, that story from, from her crying to love. I was going to say, those cries of tears of fear. Turn into cries. Oh my god, I gotta go back. You're you're laughing like all of us have done in the past. Say, yeah, right, because I know how you're thinking. Like, I you're saying, Biatch, you're saying, if it wasn't for us, this would never have happened. So sit your ass down. And I swear, you're thinking, of course, everybody's like, yeah, like, and you're going, you're going to Mark. This thing would never even happen if Paul didn't start rocking this joint. Because that's what it normally always was with our music. Our music was always looked at like we would call it the bastard child music for the R&B market. You know, they would be like, why are they getting these guys to touch our records? And I don't want to mention these, but I remember them 
yelling at us, screaming, how dare you do what I, you did? You have our record. Right, exactly. Yep, exactly. Yo, but later on, when you got that check, oh, man, can you do that again? No. As a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Because you can't, you can't kinetically, you can't do it. It just happened. You weren't even feeling it probably, or you just did what you do, and you can't do that again. It just exactly. doesn't work like that. Exactly. That's you know, that true. formula, that moment, you experimenting, all that great stuff that happened. You try to do it again. Yes, close and close was huge. Mm -hmm. But just the way things happen, if you didn't do that first record, where would this conversation be now? You wouldn't even be mentioning this. You would have said, well, the record died. And we're on to the next one. Exactly. And I, I always call it the magic of the moment. Because whenever you're doing anything creative, you can end up with an accident in the studio that you're like, you know what? You, you push the wrong button at the, at the right screen. <gasps> Yo, but that's it. That's it. Exactly. That's it. That's exactly. it. Exactly. You keep that, keep that. That's where here's a quick story. I don't remember what record this was. Shep, one of Shep's mixes. The guy, I, I don't remember which record, but I remember something with the claps, and he deleted it. Deleted it. Shep went nuts. It was like either that or the computer died and hit save. It was one of those things. And it happens to the best of us. You don't have that part? Yeah. Oh, good. Remember? You were like, oh, God, everybody's dead. They're sick. You get, yeah. you don't remember what you played? No, I don't remember what I played. Play it again. That's not it. That's not it. You know, hippie, come on. We've been in those sessions, bro. You know what I'm oh, talking yeah. about. Very true. Very true. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> How could you do that? I don't know. I didn't hit save. Exactly. exactly. There was no autosave back then, children. There was no autosave. There was no recalling. There was just none of that. You were you were doing things as you were doing it. And if you didn't record it or save it, it's gone. Yep. Gone. That's true. Let's not even talk about floppy disks back then. What? It wasn't like now, buddy. You had a floppy disk you used to floppy. And you hear it going like this. You were waiting. Saving everybody. Just go get a coffee or something. It'll come back. It'll be saved. Two meg, two megabytes on a floppy. Wow, we could sample for eight seconds. Whoa! Right. All right, we have to now sample the vocals, and we're gonna drop it back and forth to tape, so we can get time out of it. Right? We will all be thinking like, how are we gonna make this work? Because we're on limited, and when I say limited budgets, air tight, shoestring, ridiculous nonsense budgets we were working on back then, until this whole thing blew up. And for those of you that don't know, the first samplers that were really worth worth were getting were Fairlights. That was a hundred thousand dollar investment for a thirty six second sample machine. I know. That was it. So you see, Herbie Hancock and them—they had that kind of money. Exactly. Yo, we were working on. You know, we were working on the ashes from the ashtray that was thrown out on the back end of the garbage. We were opening. Up. That's the kind of budgets we were working on. Yeah, yeah. But we were so thrilled to be working on those records. All of us were. All of us were like, "Oh my god, what do you work on, hippie? What is you?" I remember we were all talking. Yo, so homeboy's got fifteen hundred dollars. He got fifteen hundred. Like, and then when we heard the big remix money start, remember that. It's like 10, 15, 25, 30, 50, 50,000 for what? 100,000? We will all be like, can't be. No, it happened. It's real. 
You know, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. And that was all during our time of that yeah, house. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Everything has its, its, its peak moment. You know what I mean? Every kind of art form has a peak moment that that's going to be nostalgic. But it was always it was also very good for us at that time, you know, financially, you know, uh, spiritually, you know, everything included. There was a time, you know, for us, it was that period. You know, that Big time. Really the golden era. Time. Yeah. The golden. So. So, okay, so she wins this R&B uh, thing, uh, the awards, gold things. And I remember you got the record, too, for the you know amount of sales in Europe and stuff on the record. Where do you go from there? You know, where, does, where does hippie start to go? Well, then from there, after we were finishing that and doing some of that stuff, I started my own, doing my own label. So I started with What Is Hip. And I, I don't really put a lot of stuff out, per se, with What Is Hip, but I try to put stuff that I like or, you know, that I, that I feel is worth putting out. So that's what I've done. I, I'm not a lot of music, but I've done some stuff on there. But I've also done remixes. I did remixes for a bunch of different people in between. You know what I mean? Things like that. And I still DJ. It's what I do. Um, but in between, you know, it's funny because during my, all the way up until I would say up until the age of 32, all I did was DJ. All I did was DJ. You know, all my life, that's all I did. I had no other job. That was it. After 32 and I met my girl and we got together, I still DJ all the time, but I would always do sort of um, other jobs to, you know, make some money. I was lucky. I got into, I used to work at MSNBC as an audio guy. So I was at MSNBC when the 2000 elections, I was at MSNBC with 9-11 uh, happened. I was at MSNBC for all those things. I mean, I was right in the middle of it when those things were happening. And I, and I was just there, you know, as an audio guy, hooking up the mics and the earpieces for what we call the talent. The talent was anybody that came in, you know, that was either a, a reporter, a, a, a representative, a artist, whatever it was. So I did that, you know, and it's, it's like from that point on, I've always DJ, but I always try to keep those kind of things going. And now in the last five years, I, I ended up working at the library system here in, in um, Columbia, South Carolina, because they have a recording studio at my branch. So they were like, when I went and I said, oh, yeah, I you know, have all this experience with audio and everything. They were like, perfect. You're the perfect five for this. But I want to also bring up to everybody that, you know, in the 90s and and I'm going to give Barbara and Don a big, you know, Barbara, Barbara Tucker and Don Welch. They brought Hippie in downstairs in the funk hut mm -hmm. to let everybody, the younger crowd, hear him. New York, because he was a true Jersey legend. But in New York, people have forgotten that he played because he was so long playing in Jersey. So he started to do his mixing in that basement flawlessly with classics, because that was what the, what was the funk cut down in Sound Factory Bar. You know, Hippie was doing his thing for a while. You know, he was traveling to Europe and he was getting a chance to play downstairs and. He had a whole new generation of clubbers starting to experience the hippie sound. That yeah, no, it was, it was, it was actually that was a great time because I, I think a lot of great people got DJ down there, you know. And I only DJ down there because Camacho told me, you know, I went to see because when I went to the funk, but uh, Camacho was the house jock there for them, right? You know, for a while, yeah, he was the man. Camacho was like, um, um, he was like, um, this man, you know, play a couple of records. So I threw a couple of records on, you know, I played some, just a couple of songs for him. Um, and the owner came, check this out. The owner came, I forgot who his name was. And he's like, 
What the hell are you doing on my system? You're not supposed to be on my system. You, mean, you talking about Jeffrey Rodman or Phil Smith? I could. I don't know. The guy with the glasses. The, the... Phil Smith. Okay. So he, what the hell are you doing on my system? You're not supposed to, You can't be playing down here. This is not for anybody to play at. And Macho turned around and almost bit his head off. He said, dude, that's my teacher. You don't tell him what he wants to. <laughs> he does what he wants to. What he, he wants whatever to. Whatever he wants to. He's like, you don't, you don't talk to him like that. That's my teacher. Don't ever say anything like that at all. Okay? Maybe Jeffrey Rodman would have done that. Maybe he would have done that because he was managing club on Wednesdays. Yeah, that would have been Jeffrey Rodman. That sound factor. Yeah, though. I mean, and it was funny. But from that point, and then it, it, um, Barbara Tucker got to hear me and Don, and they were like, you know, we like to do some guest spots. And and they wanted me to do guest spots. And I, like I said, I went to to uh, Camacho, and I told him, listen, dude, I don't know what's going on, but they want me to do some guest spots. And stuff. I told him, you tell me no, I won't do it. Because that's the way I used to do it. The same thing happened to me with Naeem. Naeem took over docs when I left, but then they wanted me to come back. And I told Naeem the same thing. I said, yeah, Naeem, they want me to come back and play here. But if you don't want me to, I won't do it. But both of them were like, dude, just don't worry about it. You can do it. I got other things happening. Do it, okay? So that's the only reason why I played. I ended up playing because they, they gave me permission. They said, you can do it. So um, that's how I ended up going down there and doing the gigs because Camacho told me it was okay, and they wanted me to do gigs there. And one thing, like you said, I was always Jersey because New York to me was, they had their own thing happening. You know what I mean? They had their own thing going on. So it, it never really called me. I had so much work in Jersey that I didn't need to go to New York, honestly, unless I want, you know, like I, the limelight, I did it because it was a thing to do. But other than the limelight, I really didn't play a lot in New York. It was strictly Jersey. You know what I mean? And I had, you know, like, you know, like New York crowd for Garage and Better Days. I had my crowd in Jersey, so I didn't need a crowd. You know what I mean? I had people that actually appreciated what I did and what I played. So, you know, when that new audience, like you said, that younger audience started that uh, core audience, yeah, that new audience. Exactly, it was because of that. Exactly, I remember. I remember it was like, yeah, I can remember like yesterday when you started playing downstairs. You were teaching a new a new set of DJs, just like what Naeem and Camacho experienced watching you. You were doing what you do, you know, and your style of long over long, what I would call long transition mixing. You would just. And not flawlessly, everybody used to laugh. I used to just listen and go, he's still hippie. That's hippie. Does what he does, you know? And the others would be like, I can't do that. I said, well, then you need to learn. (laughs) You need to watch him. And yeah, because it's a talent, you know? And I always said that guys that can really mix really well, that's a a true talent. And of course, you know, the others have yelled at me and said, but that's not only part of it. It's also programming. And that as well you knew how to do because you were there right from the tippy tippy top right. of it. Well, programming, I always say I'll take a programmer over a mixer any day. I always well, that say, was T. Scott. Yeah, T. Scott or Mancuso. Mancuso doesn't mix at all. But guess what? It's programming. Oh, one record after another. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So programming is everything to me. It really is. Um, now, the other thing is that um, besides Mancuso, like I said, I never got to hear Nicky Siano. But I, one thing I always did from the beginning, because remember back then, most jocks, most club jocks and all that, were either doing something extra, you know, whether it be drugs or something like that. There was always something helping them get through that night. I always wanted to be an example on the opposite end, because everybody got high back. I was the only one that didn't get high back then. So how did you, jocks. so, okay, so how would you keep through the night and keep stamina? And what would you do through the night? Strictly music. 
I just lived for the music. That was it. I can no alcohol either. No, I didn't drink. I didn't do any drugs. I didn't smoke cigarettes. I didn't do any of that. It was strictly just the music and me. That was it. And don't get me wrong. I had my you know my vices. You know, I I like girls, so I had vices and stuff. But it wasn't anything to do with drugs. The girls kept me going. You know what I mean? Girls would come to the DJ booth. Hey, what's happening? Hey, baby, what you doing? What's going on? But other than that, that was it. You know. But I did it because I always I always felt that that um, doing this, you're always are going to be at some point if you do it long enough, like anything, an example for a younger generation. So I was hoping to be that kind of thing where they could say, you know what? If he can do it without having to do anything, I can do it. You know, and I wanted to be that sort of like positive uh, role model for them to be able to do the music without having to do anything but the music. Because back then, I remember so many jockeys telling me, man, you know, I, I need this to get to that next level. Like it would take them to a whole different plane. You know what I mean? But I didn't need it for some reason. I just didn't need it. I just I think I think because you were a dancer, too. Yeah. Yeah, I was. And that's the key. I mean, people, I tell this to everybody, when you feel that music go through you, it's either you're playing or dancing, it's a high, it's a euphoric high. And, my, and mind you, you're controlling a big dance floor. What a high that is. Oh, without a doubt. It, the, when you're in the DJ booth and you're controlling, and the thing about it, you get to the point where you can know, you know when you can make them scream. I mean, that's control. But they're bumping their heads and they're dancing. And you and I used to turn around and tell the jock, I said, watch this. And I would go do my next mix. And at, like on cue, bang, woo, they would scream and holler. That, you know, is control. When you can get to that point where you can control your audience to do that, you know you're controlling them. Yeah. Yeah, see, and that's important. And that's that's a that's a true storyteller. You know, where you have your euphoric high and you bring them back down, you reset them. You know, you don't want them to go home. Larry was perfect for that. He would say it all the time. Watch everybody. Watch to see that crowd going home. They'll play their record. And he would play their record, turn them right back around. Maybe with another five hours. Exactly. You know? That's right. And, and you know, I love telling the story. Of Larry. When, I, when Larry came to work at the, the Zanzibar, we got together. You know, we got together and like, let's, let's meet up. So we met up and we went to dinner. He, um, he wanted to get a haircut. So I took him to, we used to have a Bamberger's downtown in Newark. Oh, wow. Bamberger's. Jesus. Yeah. And they used to have a, 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 a salon there where I used, you know, I used to get my hair. It used to be like a nice salon. So I took him there. He got his haircut there. And then from there, um, you know, we hung out and, you know, we talked music and DJ and all that. And one of the things he told me, he said, listen, I don't care what the audience wants. I don't give a shit about the audience, what they want to hear. If I believe in the record and I believe it's good, I'm going to play it. And you have to play it until they get it. That's it. So he was at times, like I used to, to, to tell people, he would play a new song and people would look at him like, what are you playing? What is that? But by the 10th time of that night that he's played it, by the end of the night, it was the anthem for everybody in the club. By the end of the night, everybody knew this is Larry's new song. And they were into it just like he was into it. So that's where the programming comes in. If you believe in a record enough, you can say, you know what? I know this is a good song. It's Has there been any records like that that you had to experience to break to your crowd? Do you remember one that's a standout? Yeah, believe it or not, to me, um, World of the Ghetto, George Benson, at first, was extremely difficult for people to get in because of the, the way it played. You know, you, it wasn't steady. It would break down into these sort of, you know, soft parts and then build up again. So it took, it didn't take, it took, Playing it for years and years and years. And then finally, like you say, when I ended up playing at Sound Factory Bar downstairs, 
playing it again. Then it became the song where everybody's like, oh, I love that. It was, it was so popular and so well-liked that, you know, Louis Vega went and got, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? George Benson to do a track with him. We know with the little thing he did, the guitar and the thing. All of that happened right after we started playing that song and brought it back to life. You know what I mean? To that new crowd that you say. It took that long to make that song that popular. Now, mind you, that's from let's let's give the timeline. We're talking 1976, right? World is a ghetto. Yeah. Um, and and you now you're talking like 1994. Yeah. yeah. So you're talking about 17 years later to bring that record to that level, exactly. so that the crowd would go crazy playing it there, and yeah. then him going, "I'm doing this album, New Eureka Soul," and exactly. the and elements of life, all that comes together. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah, crazy, bro. I mean, you know, it's just the way it is. You know, sometimes some songs do take their time, you know, it does take time, but eventually, I always say a song and and the audience are just two people trying to find each other. So, so let me give you George's response because I had dinner with George Benson not too long ago and I asked him about that record. I said, you know, when Louis he said, well, Kenny had the drums playing, okay. You know, that, that skips up. And he just said to Louie, listen, let me grab my guitar. Just record me. Whatever I do, one take, bro. It was one take he did. That Donny Hathaway remake. Boom. They heard that. He heard it back and he said, that's a rap. He told me just like that. He said, straight up. One take, I did it. I played the guitar. And I said, and I just felt this vibe, and it just it led me to that direction. And that, to me, I said to him, I went like this. I went, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, remember, I always, I always tell people, and one thing I love doing is I love history. So as a DJ, I'm always looking at how can I better what I do from learning from the past. I tell people learn all the time. Go watch. Go learn what vaudeville was. Okay. Go learn what vaudeville was, okay? Because vaudeville was a hard audience to perform and people would do it. Now, I tell people this all the time because people are like, okay, you know, what, what? why vaudeville? Because vaudeville did this. You had an act. They would hire you for eight minutes to do your act. Guess what? If your act didn't work, guess what you did? You would change your name, <laughs> yes. something different, right? and come back and try to get hired again. So I tell that to people all the time. You're a DJ. You, you know, you're trying to do your thing. If it doesn't work for you, change your name. You know what I mean? Get a whole new name. Start again. I don't see why not. They do it in clubs. You know, think about it. They do it in clubs. Most of these clubs in New York have been a different club at one point or another. Yeah, right. In the same places. In the same spots. In the same exact spot. Exactly. But exactly. not anymore. Not even after Giuliani destroyed it all. But we yeah, back up to his time, it would be change the name. Put new paint and change some things around. It was a whole new club. I know. There's a bunch of jocks that have done that. You know, these, these you know, people that are like Dead Mouse, they were completely something different as a DJ. And then, you know, they, you know what? They changed their persona. They got a whole new thing going. Bang. Until they find that hit. You can do that with the same thing with your career when you're an artist. You can do the exact same thing. Well, you have actually proven that because you've revolutionized yourself a few times to stay with the ends without changing your name, but you did some modifications to fit into the times. It's just the way it goes. Right, right, 
Exactly. You understand that principle and you're you're what I call not only just part of the club, but you're in the club, you know, as far, you know, you're not only the guy who's to, to pay commercial, not only am I the owner of the spot, I'm also, you know, one of the uh, members of the club. So I understand that. No. And, um, you know, and the last final question, I mean, you covered a hell of a lot. Where do you see stuff going from here? Beyond what's what's the plan? What's your feeling? Your gut instinct? What do you want to do? What do you, you know? I know you're doing the library thing, which is great. So that's a job. Okay. So I've got uh, uh, July 3rd. I'm doing a gig in North Carolina with my, uh, I think it's Mike Brown, his name, I believe it is. Um, I'm doing a gig with him. And then September 11th, I'm doing the Weekway Park in Newark, up in Jersey. And I'm going to be celebrating the uh, uh, anniversary of Docs, which is the 45th and the 42nd, 42nd of Zanzibar. Wow. Those are long anniversaries. And whatever else comes in between, I'll be doing something. You know, like yeah. I said, we just got out of COVID, so people are just beginning to. I know they're just breathing life all of a sudden. They're calling me and calling everybody. Like, yeah. you know, the thing is now they're trying to find clubs to do things because a lot of places are closed. Exactly. That's another issue we're all dealing with. It's like, you know, everybody, everybody's rushing to want to go somewhere, but it, where the hell are you going? Exactly. No, it's true. Very true. Yeah. Oh, man, brother, man, you are the, you know, you are a legend. Uh, and we bless that. you. I have, I have been around for, for a while, that's for sure. I think so for a minute. You've been around for more than a minute. <laughs> I always tell, like, like I tell people, I, I always say, you know, I've just been DJing six months just to keep it fresh. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Do, would you rather play vinyl than digital? Um, actually, I'm I'm more into the moving into the the purest sound for the audio. So I love vinyl, but I want to get what the producer would want you to hear. If I was a producer and I had a choice between you listening to a pristine version of my song or the same song in vinyl, I think I'd take the pristine. You know what I mean? As a producer and an artist. In other words, are I want to put my best front out to you. So what are we talking about? Like lossless wave files, those big files? That you rather play the digital file? You rather play the analog tape? What do you want to play? Well, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would say the wave files, you know what I mean? Or even 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 if we get to the point where we could start playing, you know, the 24 bits and the 192, you know what I mean? Higher, higher files. I would do that. You know what I mean? But at least the wave files, you know what I mean, for now, are fine for me. You know what I mean? I'm fine with that. Because... I really believe that, you know, I don't care who the producer is. They want you to hear the best version of their song. I mean, you don't want to hear, you know, it's great to hear a song, but it really doesn't help the song. You know what I mean? It's really not making song. It's like saying, let's get, okay, so I got these movies. You know, I got this one that has all the scratches on it, and I got a nice, pure version. Which one would you like me to release or put out there for you? I think it's going to be the clean one. Yeah, the 4K version. I want to see exactly. the like when you watch exactly. Netflix now, everything is golden, everything looks pretty and clean and fresh. And yeah, I don't want to watch an old movie. It looks like it's got, you know, I could barely see the coloring or even see the people's faces. I know. Yeah. That's all right. I, I'm one of those. I, I always believe if, if you can get to a better sound, hey, internal eventually it's gonna be, you know, just something in our head. And you know, we can just press a button or think of a song and it'll just pop in our head. We'll get to that point. You know what I mean? You don't even need a player. You know, it'll just be in your head. That's it. 
Good Lord Almighty. I know it's going to be that. It's, and it's around the, it's within moments. It's not even around the quits. Within a second, this is going to happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I tell you what, you're going to have a lot of work. There's no doubt. It's because as this music thing starts to turn on, people want to be together again. And it is what it is. You'll be banging it out and rocking those parks and rocking everywhere. Watch, you know it. <laughs> You'll have that run. You'll run. You know what I'm saying? Amen, hippie to you, brother. You just keep doing what you do and thank you. Need the way for all of us. Thank you, Lenny. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for all. Oh, it was needed to be done. It's needed to be done. And thank you. And and you know, of course, stay safe and be careful out there because you can't be crazy. You know, still kind of like we're a little bit in the in-between stage, but we'll get there. 